What's up, skeptics? I'm your host, Zoe McDaniel, and you're listening to Professional Skepticism. So today we have a very special guest with us, Sahaj Sharda. In his newest book, The College Cartel, Sahaj Sharda is starting an essential debate about the monopolistic greed of the Ivy League colleges and other elite schools. Sahaj is attending Columbia Law School, where he will focus on antitrust laws so that he can fight the economically abusive use of monopoly power by big companies in higher education and beyond. Enjoy the interview. Thank you so much for joining me today. We do have a limited amount of time, so I'm just going to go ahead and dive right into the questions, if that's okay with you. Sure. Okay. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. So what is the problem with elite colleges, and when did you first realize there was a problem? I'll start with your the second part of that question first. So when I was in high school, I was first exposed uh, to a college admission scandal, and there was a student who was a year older than me who told everyone that she got into both Harvard and Stanford. And, you know, she was, she was a clever girl, but I think from the beginning, people were a little bit skeptical of her story because not only did she say that she got into both Harvard and Stanford, but she started telling everyone that the two schools thought she was so special that they'd come up with a special program just for her, whereby she could go to both schools for two years and graduate with a degree from both. And the student who is of South Korean heritage uh, somehow made it into the press in South Korea. And I remember going into high school one day and there were all these South Korean news crews who were asking students like me if we knew the quote genius girl. And this had become a massive international story that a student from South Korea or of South Korean heritage was so clever, the schools were so desperate to enroll her. But as time went on, as media scrutiny increased, her story began to unravel. At some point, Harvard and Stanford put out press releases saying that she hadn't been admitted. Um, and then something really weird happened, which was everyone in our high school class got an email from what was supposedly a Harvard professor saying that we should stop gossiping about this student because he knew her, he knew her research, he knew that she was really valuable and, you know, he knew more than we did. And off the bat, you know, no one really understood why a Harvard professor would send an email to a bunch of high schoolers a couple states away over rumors in a high school. And most importantly, it just didn't seem real. And as it turned out, the email was a forgery. The student had somehow hacked the Harvard servers to send out this fake email to her whole high school class. Eventually, the story got covered in CNN, the Washington Post, um, and it became sort of this cautionary tale, this scandal of, of a student who, once she started lying, couldn't stop. And the story spun out of control. In the end, you know, her parents had to go on on record and basically apologize in the South Korean press for raising her poorly. It was an incredibly humiliating and embarrassing ordeal for everyone involved. But it was the first time I'd seen, you know, how toxic the pressure to get into elite colleges really could be. Um, because I think a lot of people, the lesson they took away from that whole incident was that this girl was pathological or something. But I would always flip it around and ask, you know, what does it say about our society that people are so desperate to associate themselves with the prestige of elite colleges that stuff like this is becoming more and more common? And so when I went off to college, I went to Georgetown, 
you know, another scandal happened. This was the Varsity Blues scandal, um, which some people might be familiar with, where, you know, some celebrities like Olivia Jade and others, their parents were essentially bribing athletic coaches at various elite colleges in order to have these coaches basically vouch for their kids as being star athletes. In many cases, you know, these kids hadn't even played the sport competitively ever. And so at Georgetown, again, there was another student whose parents ended up going to jail when the whole scheme unraveled. Um, And it turned out that, you know, the tennis coach at Georgetown had basically um, swung open the side door for the student. And I remember, you know, the, the sort of the sort of reaction on campus at Georgetown when this story came out wasn't so surprised that people might try to use money to get into an elite college. I think that was sort of priced in. Instead, the reaction was almost like embarrassed that her parents had been too cheap to bribe the development office, which is like paying the donation up front to the school instead of doing this somewhat more corrupt path, which would have been cheaper to do the varsity blues path instead of just paying, you know, a million or two million up front. And, you know, I remember thinking that was a wild reaction, you know, and so what does it say about our schools where, um, you know, the default when corruption is exposed is sort of uh, snobbery. And as I graduated from college, I started to think more deeply about, well, what is it that's so broken with our college system where we're seeing these scandals increase over time on the admissions side, where we're seeing so much litigation over admissions in terms of affirmative action and all these other things, and that we're seeing prices just continue to skyrocket year after year. And so I decided to look into this. Um, I took a year off from school to really just like think deeply about the problem, see if I could come up with any unique insights. And in my research, you know, what I found was that basically what's happening here is more of a cartel story. Um, The schools are basically structuring their market, the elite colleges at least, to create an artificial scarcity of seats so that even as applications go up every single year, it becomes harder and harder to get into the schools um, in an unnatural way. You know, like some selectivity is normal. But if you look at what's happened at the elite colleges, it's gotten out of control. If schools had kept standards the same from 1990, where they were already quite high, uh, enrollment would have tripled. It would have increased by 300% at the elite colleges. Instead, it stayed virtually flat and stagnant. And, you know, I started to look into, well, why is that? How have they been able to create this scarcity of seats, which has given them so much market power? so that they can then jack up prices and and do all these other anti-competitive things. And the answer is, you know, there's this weird corrupt bargain between the U.S. News and World Report and the elite colleges, where the U.S. News and World Report has come up with a rankings formula that incentivizes every single school to spend as much as possible on as few students as possible. So now if you think about a school's incentives, which is to increase in the rankings, Every school doesn't want to increase enrollment because that's the easiest way to fall in the rankings. And the schools in turn have given U.S. News and World Report the credibility to get majority market share in the rankings market. So now that's the only site that consumers really turn to in order to evaluate colleges when they're thinking about applying and so on and so forth. And so this this sort of like two-way bargain where U.S. News and World Report benefits the elite colleges the elite colleges benefit U.S. News and World Report by putting out press releases, you know, and by taking their rankings seriously and by giving all these signals of credibility to the source, which helps it achieve this monopoly market share in the rankings market, is sort of 
the beating heart of all of this dysfunction because everything else is downstream from the scarcity of seeds, whether it's varsity blues, all the litigation, all these really outrageous prices, um, and so on and so forth. There's so little competition that you're seeing all of these weird distortions happen throughout our society and throughout our economy. And so that's the story I really want to tell in the book. I think it's incredibly interesting that you've pointed this out. When you were talking at the beginning, I was really wanting to comment on the psychology of a person that would do anything to get into the school that they want to get into and go so far as to make it so that they absolutely cannot go there because now they've mm-hmm. caused this like whole entire scandal. And that really says a lot about the atmosphere of the admissions process of these elite schools. Right. And, you know, I'll tell you another story, which I thought this is by far the most crazy. Um, so this actually happened both four weeks ago and in 2007. So it's sort of like a recurring theme. Okay. But basically, there was a student in 2007 who pretended to be a Stanford student, moved into campus, um, didn't have a key card, so would climb through a window to go into an empty dorm where no one was staying every single night, um, went to classes, took exams like everyone else, um, joined the ROTC. And 10 months into this, Stanford finally figured out that there's a student who was never admitted, and then they kicked her out. And the only reason she got found out is because she went the extra step to try and join ROTC. Mm-hmm. And that led to some sort of complications. Also, a couple weeks ago, there was another story. Another Stanford so-called student was uh, basically sleeping in the laundry room uh, every night and then waking up super early to go and pretend that he was a student. And, you know, just I think the psychology of all of this is so, so interesting. It's exactly what you're saying which is that somehow, you know, the system has gotten so broken that students, smart, clearly smart students, would rather pretend than to face up to the reality of not being admitted to these schools. I think that says something very deep about, you know, how how monopolistic and broken the system has become. I agree. And so you mentioned that the main issue is the collusion on seats and the collusions on prices. So what do we do about this? Let's start with the price thing, because I think that's the one that is the easiest to do something about. So you might not know this, but basically in the 1990s, the DOJ filed a lawsuit against the Ivy League colleges because they were literally colluding on financial aid. So what they would do is they had this meeting called the Ivy Overlap Group meeting, and they would meet every spring. And the Ivy League schools and MIT would each send a representative, and they would go through their list of admitted students, and then they'd find whoever multiple of them had admitted, so overlapping admitted students. And then they would get together and try to estimate that student's like financial situation, how much they can maximally charge, how much financial aid they could squeeze from that student. And then they'd all come up with a common amount of financial aid that they would offer so that the net price at each school would be the same. And I mean, in any other industry, if you got all your competitors together and they're looking at you know common customers and then figuring out a price for that customer, That would be like the most de facto, illegal, outrageous thing in the world. But when the DOJ went after them, the schools basically turned to Congress and said, why don't you pass an antitrust exemption for us? And uh, in the 1990s, I think the schools still had the veneer of of charitability. Um, People still thought that these are schools that are broadly committed to the public good and not to monopolistic greed. And so Congress passed this exemption. And this exemption has existed. For the last 20 years, writing this book, I tried to like scour the records at all of the major publications. 
No one talked about this exemption for the better part of 20 years, even though it was renewed every seven years. Um, it just wasn't part of the story. And so this exemption is allowed, you know, in a slightly uh, changed form for a bigger cartel than even the original nine of the IV overlap group to collude on price. And so what they do now is they they had up until September of this year, a group called the 568 Presidents Group. And in this group, it was 17 of the most elite colleges in America. It was Yale, it was Georgetown, it was Columbia, Cornell, Duke, Chicago, Johns Hopkins. And these schools would come up with a common formula to assess someone's need. And so, you know, it's it's the exact same as getting around a table and talking about how much financial aid we can squeeze out of a person. It's just a little bit abstracted because they'd created this formula and then they'd all gotten this, the exact same data from FAFSA forms, et cetera, plugged it into the formula and then all offered basically the exact same amount of aid. So it was the exact same thing, a little bit more abstracted, a little bit uh, less objectionable in the sense of sensibility. And yet in terms of anti-competitive conduct, just as bad, probably worse because now more schools are doing it. And so finally in, in January of this year, there was a class action lawsuit filed against the schools to say to them that, you know, this exemption is wrong. Um, and even if you did qualify for this exemption, you're still breaking the antitrust laws for X, Y, and Z reason. Um, since then, you know, the exemption has expired as of September. I think there's some talk of the colleges trying to bring it back in the lame duck session in Congress. Uh, I hope that doesn't happen. But I would say, like, that's the very first place I would start, which is, you know, I think a pretty common sense thing. Elite colleges, some of the wealthiest institutions in America, shouldn't be allowed to collude on financial aid. Um, I think, you know, beyond that, there was a study that came out recently, um, I think it was two or three days ago, that showed that the vast majority of colleges, when giving students an estimate of price, you know, mispriced how expensive it's going to be. Some colleges don't include how much the loans are going to cost. Other colleges, you know, undersell how expensive housing or food or things like that will be. And so there's just a lot of disinformation when it comes to pricing. And when in consumers aren't informed, you know, they can't make the best choice. And so, you know, there's a bit of a confusopoly where the schools sort of like come up with these really uh, opaque ways of pricing, weird fees, things you don't know. They get tacked onto the bill. You have to like try to figure it out, reverse engineer what they're talking about. But they're always going to spend more resources trying to confuse you than you'll ever be able to spend trying to figure out what these contracts mean. And so, you know, that's another place where I think the government has to have a role in fixing how pricing works at elite and all colleges. But I think the most important thing, again, is the seat scarcity thing, because essentially, if you don't get rid of seat scarcity, you know, even if they fix pricing a little bit or even if they don't collude, as long as there's still a shortage, the price will still be abnormally, outrageously high. And so I think the most important thing that the government can do, and I'm not holding my breath for this, is to buy or nationalize U.S. News and World Report and change the rankings criteria to uh, incentivize expansion instead of constriction. And if they do that, they could probably get that newspaper for like $100 million. It would be the most cost-effective way to completely reshape the entire industry. I think the ROI would be absolutely outrageous. But, uh, you know, unfortunately, the government doesn't seem to be so creative in the way they do things. So the other thing that they could do, and, and again, I'm not holding my breath for this either, is if we think back to sort of the progressive era and what would Teddy Roosevelt do or what would Woodrow Wilson do if they were facing a monopoly like this or a cartel like this? 
you know, the standard answer in those days used to be like sort of breaking these things up and to create more room to grow, to breathe, to uh, create space for entrants to enter the market and compete. And, and that's not what's happened in the college cartel sector. Instead, you know, these handful of like 20, 25 schools have just gotten wealthier and wealthier and they're able to basically squeeze everyone else out where no one else can compete. You know, what I would say is break up the endowments and let's start seeding new schools. We haven't had a new entrant into the elite college market since like, I think U Chicago in like 1900 or maybe Caltech in 1904. That's I mean, crazy. It's been, it's been over 110 years. So if we break up these endowments and, you know, Harvard, let's say, has $50 billion, you could have five Harvards with $10 billion each, which is still plenty of money. I mean, you can run a fantastic university with that much money. I think Columbia's endowment is only like $13 billion. So it's clearly possible. And I think that's, you know, a direction we should be looking at. Uh, it would also be really good because I think it's been too long since we've had a new entry into this market. And, you know, America is the place where we build things, new institutions, new places, um, fresh air. I think it's time we start doing that again. Okay, so with elite organizations, um, I feel like, particularly with these schools, they feel like something that we should be able to trust. And I feel like maybe that's why it's only just now becoming something that people are noticing. It's like, I want to be able to trust Harvard and all these other schools and that they're doing the right thing. So how does this affect people that wouldn't be in this kind of elite world, if you will? Yeah, so I think that's a really important question because, you know, it's only like 2% of students go to the most selective colleges. Right. So that's right, right? Like, how does this affect the other 98%? I would argue that it has a massive impact. And the reason that's the case is because these elite colleges, which only serve like the 2% of the most, you know, selective uh, students, um, have a disproportionate amount of impact on the rankings regime. So like I mentioned, you know, it's the elite colleges that basically give U.S. News and World Report the credibility it needs in order to get monopoly market share in the rankings market. And that's not me saying that. That's uh, U.S. News and World Report's chief, Bob Morris, put out a quote to Time uh, in 2009, who basically explicitly said just that. And what then happens is, well, it's not just the elite colleges that judge themselves on the rankings criteria. Instead, that trickles up and down the entire college ecosystem. So you have a place like UVA, um, that wants to climb in the rankings just as much as anyone else. You have a place like Virginia Tech that wants to climb in the rankings just as much as anyone else. Florida State. I mean, all, basically all the way down to community colleges um, and everything up to the most elite colleges uh, are basically affected by this rankings regime. And so it creates a structural distortion where now, you know, I'm from Virginia. A place like UVA, when they do expand, um, you know, I would say they don't expand as much as they need to. Uh too many of the students that are brought in are international students because, again, the whole logic of the rankings is spend as much as possible on as few students as possible. And so if you're a state school, you're going to get way less revenue from in-state tuition than you would get from a wealthy Chinese person or a wealthy Indian or a wealthy European or someone from out of state. And so these schools have basically gone all out to try and recruit everyone but the taxpayers who've supported them for all these years mm -hmm. in order to climb in the rankings. And this type of structural distortion is, is very, very common at all of the state schools. And the state schools are obviously where the vast majority of students in America go. Um, you know, you see the exact same story happen at Michigan and Berkeley. But even if you go one tier down, places like Virginia Tech, well, Virginia Tech now has to compete with UVA, right? Because, you know, they're, they're sort of the next level down and they're trying to catch up to UVA. So they start to do the exact same thing. 
And by the time, you know, this, this sort of distortionary effect works its way through the system, you end up with much higher tuition, which is why tuition inflation has been very high, even at the public universities, even as the government, the federal government, has spent more and more on loans and aid and Pell Grants and all these other things. The cost of tuition has continued to rise. And I think one of the reasons is because you have this structural distortion that's coming from the elite colleges. So it's a bit like King Kong on the top of the Empire State Building. He's destabilizing the whole structure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I have a question for you. If elite colleges are so corrupt, why do you go to Columbia? Yeah, look, it's an interesting question. I mean, I guess my point would be, you know, the elite colleges have a lot to offer students. So mm -hmm. I think there are opportunities I got at Georgetown or that I'm now getting at Columbia that I couldn't get anywhere else. And I would, I would really tailor my critique more. I would say, you know, it's not that the elite colleges are useless or they're, they're not worth it. My issue with them is that they cost too much and let in too few students. Um, and so I think it's really important to criticize the institutions you're part of. I'm sure, you know, if, uh, if someone at Columbia sees this interview, they're not going to be super happy. But <laughs> uh, the way I think about this is this is a way to make Columbia stronger. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the great things about America is we get to have our disagreements in public and people get to make up their minds about um, what the you know, direction of our institutions are going to be. I think uh, this is the most important thing you can do to make Columbia and other colleges stronger. Um, and that's really what motivates me to do this. Yeah, question authority, attack from the inside a little bit mm -hmm. there. So I, I know that you protested at Yale. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. Um, so in May of this year, um, I organized a protest at Yale with a couple of my friends, and we dressed up as Monopoly men, um, and we went to their graduation. Um, and, you know, one of the really cool things that we're planning on doing is bringing this, like, uh, air blimp uh, and flying it over the graduation and have it say, Yale, stop fixing prices. Uh, at the time, we were trying to start a debate about this whole 568 presidents group of which Yale is a member. Mm -hmm. And so we get there, you know, weeks in advance, I'd gotten all the permits that we needed to fly the blimp. I'd gotten a, a protest permit for uh, where we're going to be outside of Yale's campus. Um, and so all of that was good and ready to go. But the day before the protest, I get a call from the New Haven Register, which is their local newspaper. And, uh, you know, this, this reporter basically asked me, well, hey, can you tell me a little bit about your protest? And I told him a little bit about the protest, assuming that he wouldn't write anything for, for a couple of days, um, or at least until the protest happens. Uh, mm -hmm. Turns out, you know, Ed, the reporter, calls Yale like two minutes later and tells them the whole thing and then asks for comment. And so when I get to New Haven, Yale is well organized. They've like called in a bunch of favors and like the mayor's office or whatever. And so I have to meet with the department of, I think they called it like Homeland Security for the state of Connecticut and a bunch of state agencies. The police chief is there. Oh my um, the fire, the firefighters are there. Um, they're all these like uh, permit authorities. And so they basically try to drown me in bureaucracy and they say, look, you can't fly your blimp. One bureaucrat explicitly says to me, like, that blimp isn't fine. And then they, you know, they gave me a form, which is like sort of like a drone permit. And, you know, I'd looked for that form online, never found it. I looked for it after I got the form, still didn't find it. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, uh, that form doesn't exist online. And so, you know, one of the things I learned was that Yale runs New Haven a bit like a fiefdom. 
Um, they are such a dominant employer, a dominant source of wealth for that community that the entire political economy sort of shapes around them. And, you know, I think it's not just Yale. I think a lot of colleges run their, their states, their cities as these sort of fiefdoms. And I think, you know, what that really opened my eyes to is if they can run local government like this, well, why wouldn't they be running Congress like this? And in fact, they are. You know, it's when DOJ went after them, they turned to Congress for a shield. When, um, you know, the endowment taxes come in, they turn to Congress for a shield. Uh, they turn to Congress for subsidies all the time on research grants and all these other things. Um, and so I would say, you know, what, what really opened my eyes about that protest was the amount of political capture that the colleges are capable of. Um, and, uh, I think that's something that we're in desperate need of change on, um, because it's starting to get a little bit ridiculous. Yeah. I think that's super cool that you did that. Um, I think we're probably going to wrap up here in a moment. Did you want to have any last words before you plug your book or your sub stack? Sure. Yeah. Um, I guess, you know, the one message I, I would love to leave people with is, you know, a lot of these these fights seem like very domain specific. So, you know, there are a lot of people talking about bringing antitrust to big tech or, you know, try, like I am bringing antitrust to the elite colleges um, or in this domain or that. But I think, you know, what's often been missing is this more unifying theme, which is this is really a question of big versus small. I mean, who do we want the laws and our institutions to look out for? Um, the biggest corporations, the most wealthy universities, or the, you know, everyday average people who are trying to make it ahead in life. Um, and the more institutions and laws favor the big, uh, the less social mobility is going to be a reality in America. I don't think it's any surprise that fewer and fewer people believe in the American dream today than ever have. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the only way to reverse that is to go back to this country's very proud tradition of breaking up things that are too big to fail, too big to care, and too big to be any good. Nice. Thank you for that. Um, when does your book come out? So my book comes out in January. Uh, the best way for people to be in touch with me is you can go to www.breakthecartel.com. Um, I have a petition on that website. So I made that website myself, so it doesn't look amazing. But I have a petition <laughs> on that website where people can sort of indicate to Congress they don't want Congress to renew the antitrust exemption in this lame duck session that's about to come up. Um, I think, you know, that's the lowest bare minimum thing that people can, can do and still have a big impact. Right. Because if Congress thinks that people are paying attention, they won't do it. And I think that will directly result in thousands and thousands of dollars going to the students instead of the schools because they won't be able to collude as much anymore. Um, so I please very much plead with everyone to go to breakthecartel.com and sign that petition. Also on that website, I think you can find my Substack and Twitter, which I'm also happy to send to you if you want to link to it. Um, and you can stay in touch with me there. The book will come out in January and I hope everyone reads it. Awesome. Yeah, I have the link to all of your stuff. So I'm going to post it when we release this episode. And the Substack stuff is really interesting. I was looking through that before our interview. Um, other than that, I do want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview with me today. And I hope you have a lovely day. Well, I had a really fantastic time. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Thank you. 
What's up, skeptics? Thank you so much for being dedicated listeners of Professional Skepticism Podcast. I couldn't do it without you. If you like what we're doing over here at Professional Skepticism, please show your support by doing any of the following. Leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you stream the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at Professional Skepticism Podcast. Subscribe to our Patreon for behind-the-scenes and bonus content at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. Get some merch at profsketpodcast.bigcartel.com. Check out our official website at profsketpodcast.com. Follow our Instagram at profsketpodcast. You can find all these links in our Instagram bio or in the episode show notes. We've come so far and our journey has only just begun. Subscribe to make the dream work. Stay sus, skeptics. Mwah.